Welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We're so thankful that you're taking some time today to listen. We pray that this week's message challenges you to press in deeper with your pursuit of Christ. Our mission at Vision Church is to go and make disciples. You can help us in this mission by rating this podcast and sharing it with the world via social media. We want to reach the lost by raising up the found. Thank you again for tuning in today and enjoy the message. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand and a table and a sacred loaves of bread on that table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain. And behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In that room were a golden incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered on all sides with gold. Inside the Ark was a jar, a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that had sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Verse five, above the Ark were cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the Ark's cover, the place of atonement but we cannot explain these things in detail now. When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties, but only the high priest could ever enter the most holy place and only once a year. He always offered the blood for his own sins and the sins that the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. This is an illustration pointing to the present time for the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciousness of the people who bring them. For the old system deals only with the food and the drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were only in effect until a better system could be established. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we love you so much. We're so grateful for your word and your spirit in this room. I pray you'd be strong in my weakness today and bring your word to life right before our eyes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. So a little bit of context into the book of Hebrews in case you're new to the church or the series. Uh, The book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews, Messianic Jews who were born of a Jewish descent but had placed their faith in Christ. Many of them started on fire for Jesus. They were passionate for the Lord in their early years. But as years distanced and went by, many of them grew lukewarm in their faith and many of them succumbed to the pressure of family and society drawing them back to Judaism. You have to remember that to be a Jew in this time period meant that Judaism was not just your religion, it was your culture, it was who you were. It was the festivals, the feasts that you celebrated and ate together as a family. So this was, they were under an immense amount of pressure. So the author of Hebrews recognizes that many of them are turning back to Judaism and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, They write 13 magnificent chapters like a lawyer building their case to draw these Hebrew Christians back to Christ and to not renege on their faith. That's the context. The first 10 verses of chapter nine can be summarized this way. 
The old system was a picture. And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write that down. The old system was a picture. Why don't you look at your neighbor with some attitude and tell them the old system was a picture. Where we're picking up today is the continuation from chapter eight, where the author is continuing to compare and contrast the old covenant and the new covenant. But here in chapter nine, he goes a step further and compares the old covenant to the old tabernacle, all right? Um, in just a moment, we're gonna go ahead and throw up a graphic to show you what the old tabernacle of Moses looked like. In fact, it's important that we all start with this premise and this basic understanding of the tabernacle. I think we have the picture. We'll go ahead and throw that up there. Um, this is a picture of the tabernacle of Moses. Uh, for those of you who are, uh, who've been with us for a long time, the first church was a mobile church. And so when I see this, it looks like pipe and drape everywhere. Okay, those of you who are not laughing, you weren't with us when we were at Metro School, setting up and tearing down for seven years, okay? The first tabernacle really was a mobile church, okay? And this God gave to Moses while they were in the wilderness. And he told Moses, you are to keep this copy exactly the way I give it to you because it is a replica on earth of the true tabernacle that is in the highest heaven where God dwells that was not built by human hands. There were three components to the tabernacle. The first was the outer court, which is where you see inside the white linen. Everything inside of that is known as the outer court. Right in the middle of the outer court, you'll see a brown box that is known as the brazen altar. That's where sacrifices would be made. They would take a lamb, a bull, and they would sacrifice it there on that altar. And then they would consume that body in fire and it would be an aroma that is lifted to heaven, all right? Directly behind that, you see a small little wash basin right in front of the tabernacle. That's where the priest would wash their hands after committing the sacrifice. Now what you see behind it is the actual tabernacle itself. And inside of that were two chambers, the holy place and the holy of holies. And just to give you a little more context, this tabernacle is actually only about 74, 70, 47 feet wide, excuse me, by 17 wide, 47 long. So long story short, that tabernacle with the black, the black material, that would literally fit in this room twice, once here and once there. So it wasn't real big, but that's the tabernacle. In the holy place, that's where there was furniture, the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, these things that we read about and we're like, what in the world does that mean? I wanna caution you, every single detail in the scripture is symbolic, it's intentional, and today we're gonna to look at it really quickly what it means. But separating the holy place from the holy of holies was a veil, a thick curtain that you could not see behind, light could not penetrate it, and Behind that veil was the Holy of Holies, and there only the high priest could enter on one day a year, the Day of Atonement. And even the high priest, when he would enter it on that day, he would do so with great fear and trepidation because to go into the Holy of Holies with unrepented sin in your life, you would fall dead in the presence of God, okay? So this is a very serious situation. And inside of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a golden box, which represented God's physical presence here on earth. All right. 
So that's a little bit of the background of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. And the reason the author of Hebrews brings this to the forefront of our attention is for one powerful statement. Remember, this is a picture. And the picture is telling us one thing. The way to God is closed. The way to God is closed. It actually says that right there in Hebrews 9. The veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, that veil stood from its inception. And that veil forever declared to the Israelites that you are cut off from the presence of God. You cannot come into the presence of the living God. And under the old covenant, the way to God is closed. Okay, look at your neighbor, say the way was closed. And this is all they had ever known. In fact, we see this not only in the tabernacle, but we see this in the entire Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Look with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 19, verse 12. I want to show you this. This is incredible. In Exodus 19, when Moses ascends to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the covenant, the commandments, this is what the Lord said to Moses. Exodus 19, 12, mark off a boundary all around the mountain and warn the people, be careful. Do not go up on the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. Sounds a little harsh, a little intense there, but you got to feel this. The Lord told Moses, when you come to the top of Mount Sinai, you better put a boundary all around the base of the mountain and do not let anyone ascend the hill. If they touch the mountain, they will surely die. Why? Because the way to God was closed. Exodus 19 goes a step further. It says, even if a goat steps on the mountain, you are to shoot it with a bow and arrow. Don't even go after it. Kill the thing because it is not worthy to be in the presence of God. Okay, so again, it's a very stark, stern warning that the way to God in the old covenant was closed. We see this one more time reiterated in Joshua 3, 4, as Joshua prepares to lead the Israelites through the Jordan River and into the promised land. Watch this, Joshua 3, 4. Since you have never traveled this way before, they will guide you. Stay about a half mile behind them, keeping a clear distance between you and the ark. Make sure that you don't come any closer. So again, to feel this, Joshua tells the Israelites, hey, we're about to take the promised land, but you've never been there, so you don't know how to go. So follow the Levites as they carry the Ark of the Covenant, the priests. And as they go, you all better stay a half mile back and don't get any closer, lest you will die in the presence of God. Again, it's the same connotation that we see in Exodus 19, and that is that the way to God is closed. One more really quick example. Do you remember when David took the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem for the first time. There, they put it on, an, on a cart and oxen began to pull it. And the oxen began to stumble. And a man named Uzzah reached out to stabilize the Ark. And the moment that he touched it, he died right there in the wilderness. The scripture is painting a clear picture that you and I cannot come to God in our own strength and in our own power. You cannot make it to God under the old covenant. The way to God is closed. 
The author of Hebrews is saying that for a very specific purpose. He's warning the Messianic Jews, if you go back to Judaism, you go back to separation between you and God. If you go back to being made right with God through the Mosaic law, if you go back to the old way, you are forever cut off from God. But I got good news for you. The way is now open. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, and it's all thanks to Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 50. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split apart. Matthew 27 is telling us that when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, nails driven through his hands and feet, the moment that he gave up his life on earth, darkness covered the earth. The earth began to shake and it quaked so violently that even the veil in the temple in Jerusalem that separated God's presence from his people was ripped in two from top to bottom. And the reason that that's significant is because the cross made a way where there seemed to be no way. In the old covenant, the way to God was closed. But now, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, we can come boldly into his presence. You all just experienced the presence of God in worship. That was made possible by means of the cross of Calvary. You would have never known that presence, that sweetness. You would have never known it if not for the cross of Calvary. Thanks be to God in the highest. This is good news. The author is saying to these wavering Jews, don't go back to the law. You'll be closed from God, but now in Christ, there is access, there is a way. You know, the people, as they heard this, being of a Jewish descent, they began to rebuttal and say, well, well, we can't come to the presence of God. We're not priests. And the author of Hebrews reminds them, though you're not a priest, you're now a son. I'm about to take a lap up in here. You see, the people thought, under the old system, that the way they could come before God was by ceremonial purification, was by their own prerequisite and earning and becoming a priest. No, no, no. The author of Hebrews says, no, you may not be a priest, but you're something far better and more important. You're a child of the living God. Scripture says in the Gospel of John that as many as received him, to them he gave the power to be the sons of God. We are no longer his enemies. We are no longer on the outside looking in. Now, by faith, we are sons and daughters, and we come boldly before the throne of grace. In other words, in other words, let me bring it, let me bring it real home to you in 2022. In other words, in the old covenant, you could pray, but your prayers never left the tabernacle. Your prayers never passed the veil. Oh, but today you can pray and rest assured that heaven hears you. Why? Because we have an open heaven. The veil has been torn. God hears you. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Now in the New Testament, he not only hears our prayers, but he inhabits our praises. Jesus made a way to reconcile creation back to its creator. 
Christianity is so much more than getting you out of hell. Hell and heaven is not the ultimate objection, the, the objective. The ultimate objective is to have a relationship with God Almighty, to love the creator of the universe. Because you know what? There's something greater than heaven, and it's God himself. He is our prize. He is our reward. He is worth living for. Now, I want to show you another picture of the tabernacle really quickly. And I want to show you that Remember, the first point of the first 10 verses of Hebrews 9 is that the old system is a picture, okay? It's not just a picture of the sacrifice Jesus would make, but it's also a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and throw that third picture up. Yes, perfect. Thank you. So, you know, when I talk about the tabernacles, sometimes people check out. They're like golden lampstand, table of showbread, outer court, brazen. They're like, what does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. Everything to do with you. Don't tune out. Okay, let's lean in. The diagram of the tabernacle tells the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it really is a timeline of your spiritual progression. In the outer court, there was a brazen altar. Do you know what that brazen altar represented? The cross of Calvary. The brazen altar from the time of its inception, God knew that it was a picture of the cross. The brazen altar was in the outer court, right? Well, guess where Jesus was crucified? In the outer courts of Jerusalem, outside of the walls of the city gate, on the hills of Moriah, on a hill called Golgotha, Calvary. Jesus was crucified outside of the gates, and he who knew no sin became our sin, that we might be called the righteousness of God through him. Our high priest didn't offer the blood of an ox or a lamb. No, he himself became our sacrifice. He laid himself on the brazen altar. He gave his life for you on the cross. And the tabernacle, the picture that it's displaying is that your faith and mine, it all starts at the cross. At the brazen altar is where your, your faith and your new life begins. And I got to tell you something. I'm so thankful that the cross was in the outer court because that's the only place that the people could go. God didn't say, oh, you come to me. No, God said, I'm gonna come to you. I'm gonna, and by the way, when we hear all this Old Testament stuff about the way being closed, we get offended and we're like, well, why did God leave us? And why did God have to do us like that? Stop it. God did not leave you. You and I left him. In the garden, he designed it to be in fellowship and communion with us. But we were not satisfied with that. And we said, God, we're not satisfied with you. We want to be like you. And we fell into sin. God did not abandon us. We abandoned God. But while we were dead in our sin and lost in our trespasses, he was rich in mercy towards you. And he came after you. He died for you in the outer court to reach you. Now, there is something else behind the brazen altar, and that's the wash basin. And if you're paying any attention, I hope you know what that represents, because that's the water. What is the first commandment to every new believer who has faith in the cross? To be baptized in the water. 
That wash basin represents the water of baptism. So our faith begins at the cross and then we must be baptized in water. By the way, while I'm here, baptism is not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's a commandment. And I'm going to be honest with you, just going to confess. Every time we do baptism, I get a little bit annoyed at Vision Church because we see a whole lot of people come to Christ and I have to beg people to get baptized. I should not have to beg you to get baptized. It's the first commandment of every born again Christian. So you say you obey Jesus, you say you follow Jesus, but you won't even step into the waters of baptism, which is the initial act of obedience. I'll just leave that there. And if you want to get mad at me, you can just take it up with him and just remember this diagram. My face starts with the cross and then I'm to go into the waters of baptism. And what comes after the waters of baptism? Then we come into the holy place, which represents the church. By the way, when you're baptized, you're not baptized into Vision Church. You're baptized into the capital C Church. His body, his bride. And then we enter into the church, the holy place. Really quickly, the holy place represents the church for a, numbers of, for a number of reasons. First of all, in that holy place, the priest would minister and go in daily. Some Christians like to go to church monthly or bi-monthly. <laughs> Do you realize that the average Christian in America attends a Sunday worship service one out of every five weeks? Don't be the average Christian. Hebrews 10, don't forsake the assembly of my people. And, if, and again, if you don't like that, you just take it up with the Lord too. I'm just his messenger. So, and if there's anything at all I've said today that has offended you, to God be the glory. All right, too much. Okay, in the holy place, there were a couple things. Number one, there was a table of showbread. The table was sacred bread. That, that bread all the way back in Exodus pointed forward to the communion, the holy communion of the saints, the bread that would be broken, the cup of his blood of the New Testament, all the way back in the holy place. It was pointing forward to communion, fellowship with Christ, with God Almighty through the sacrifice of his son. And not only does the table of showbread represent communion with God Almighty, but it also represents communion with other believers. That's part of the power of the local church. And then there was also a golden lampstand inside of the holy place. And we read that and we're like, okay, a golden lampstand. But here's what that represents. The golden lampstand represents the Bible, the word of God. Scripture says, my word is a lamp unto your feet, a guide to your path. At the entrance of your word comes light. This is the scripture. The word of God is our light. And every time it's preached, every time it's preached in context correctly, the light of God's word shines brilliantly into our heart, convicting us and drawing us more into his likeness. But there was also one more thing in the holy place, and that was the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. But now that veil is torn. Now that veil is open. And by the way, the author of Hebrews wants you to not just think of the veil as a curtain that is torn. He wants you to see the veil as Jesus Christ himself. For as his body was broken, as his body was ripped, that is the picture of the veil that was ripped. And by the way, we can only get to the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, 
through Christ alone. There is one way to heaven, one way to the Father, and it is through Jesus Christ the Lord. There's only one way into heaven. It's through the veil. The veil is Jesus. Listen, people get all upset and offended when I start talking like this. They're like, oh, well, what about, the, what about the Muslims and what about the Buddhists and what about those who practice Confucianism and all that? Well, here's the deal. Nobody else died for you. Buddha didn't die for you. Muhammad didn't die for you. And in all other religions in the world, it's about man striving, straining, and sacrificing to try to reach God. But in Christianity, it's the exact inverse. God Almighty saw us in our brokenness, in our weakness, and he reached down to rescue us. He sacrificed to reach you. There is no other faith like this on the face of the earth. And there is no other faith that is centered around love and truth. Nothing else like it. No other faith is based on love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, humility. You will not find it. There's never been a love like this because this is the truth, church. And if you don't believe me, there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem that holds no body. He is the resurrection and the life. There's one way to heaven. It is through Jesus Christ the Lord. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, continuing on in the message today. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old covenant, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. By the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and the people so that all who are called can receive the internal inheritance. God has promised them for Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins that they had committed under the first covenant. This is so powerful church. So powerful. The next title that would describe the remaining verses of Hebrews nine verses 11 through 28 would be this. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Not only did Mohammed, Buddha, whoever, not only did they not die for you, their death would have been insufficient because there is only one without sin. It's Jesus Christ. That's why the, even the doctrine of the immaculate conception born of a virgin is so significant to our faith because he even bypassed the lineage of sin and death. He was born immaculately by the, by the Holy Spirit. There was no sin in him. The blood that coursed through his, his veins was not sinless or it was not sinful or defiled. It was the very blood of God Almighty shed for you on the cross. That's important. Scripture says in verse 12 that he was the perfect sacrifice once for all. Look at your neighbor and say once for all. 
This would have meant something more to the ancient Hebrews than it means to you and I today because the ancient Hebrews, all they had ever seen their priests do was sacrifice perpetually over and over and over again. They would shed the blood of a sacrifice again and again and again. And the reason was their work was never finished because the people just kept sinning. They would offer a sacrifice. And then before the Israelites could even get to the parking lot, they were sinning again. That's funny and you know it is, and hopefully you can probably relate. I know, you can't relate, I know. But the people kept sinning because, and they kept offering sacrifices again and again. But the scripture says, but now there's been one sacrifice and now the whole sacrificial system can stop because the reason they had to offer these sacrifices over and over was because the blood of the animals was insufficient. It was inadequate. But the blood of Jesus was far superior. It was so powerful that the blood of Jesus covered every sin, past, present, and future. And there is no need for another sacrifice because his blood was perfect, divine, and acceptable before God. Do you realize that even in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system, you couldn't just bring any old offering to the temple? You couldn't say, well, you know, I got this goat back here and it's like kind of, you know, it's kind of weird. So I'm going to offer that one because, you know, not much I can do with it. No, 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 no. The priest would not let you bring a defiled animal up on the altar. You had to bring one that was spotless. You had to bring your best. Why? Because all along it was pointing to a sinless sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to break from the script and tell you this. This builds my faith like nothing else ever could. Because when I read Exodus, Leviticus, and see how it connects with Hebrews and Ephesians, and how it all ties together and is interwoven so perfectly, I am profoundly convinced that ancient Hebrews, shepherds, fishermen, and tax collectors did not have the intelligence or the wherewithal to put together such a magnificent document Unless it be inspired of God, there's no way it all could have been interwoven and worked so precisely in harmony to describe God's plan to save. There's no other book like it. Nothing in the world. Written by 40 different authors, spanning 1,800 years, yet they write in perfect harmony and unison God's plan to save the world through Jesus Christ. That's not just any old book that you have. That's the living word of God Almighty. And the more I study, the more I'm profoundly convinced. And if I'm being honest with you, even as a pastor, sometimes my faith goes like this. Sometimes it wavers. Sometimes I have good days, bad days. But I'm going to tell you something. When I look back at that word and I see how it, is, how it connects from beginning to end, that's no accident, my friend. It builds my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I want to draw your attention to verse 15, and this is the meat of God's word. This is going to be a little, little deep, but you'll, you'll be all right. You're sharp. Verse 15, that is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called to receive the internal inheritance, God has promised for them, for Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under the first covenant. Really quickly, what is the author of Hebrews saying? The author of Hebrews is explaining to you right before your eyes how Jesus Christ saved the righteous dead in the Old Testament. I had somebody ask me last 
week after one of the services, they asked me, how were the Old Testament people saved? Like how was Moses and David and Zechariah, if there's only one way to heaven and it's through Jesus and his cross, how were they saved when they didn't know the name Jesus or the cross? That was a very great question, don't you? Well, Hebrews 9 explains it. Some false teachers of Judaism, the Pharisees, do you know why Jesus hated the Pharisees? Because they taught the wrong way to be saved even back then. They were telling people that the way to be saved is obedience to the law. Follow the commandments, follow the Mosaic law, and then you'll be saved. But scripture's told you time and time again that the law can't make you righteous. It only proves you guilty. That's why Jesus and the Pharisees were always at odds with each other. So how were the people saved before Christ? The answer, the same way they're saved today. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And Hebrews explains it. You ready? So when this says he was an offering once and for all time, it's not just saying that his blood is greater than the animals, which obviously it is, but it's also saying that his death on the cross reaches all the way back to Adam. And it cleanses every act of transgression, disobedience, and sin from Adam to Malachi, into the present, and to the future and beyond. The Old Testament saints were saved by their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and trusting in him by faith to save them in the end. And even though they did not know the name of Jesus, you're going to see this next week, Hebrews 11, Abraham himself was saved by faith. That's what the scripture says. And listen to this. Scripture tells us that when the Old Testament saints died, they went to a place of purgatory. Abraham's bosom is what it's called. A place of temporary holding. You say, where's that at in the Bible? Luke 16. In Luke chapter 16, the scripture tells you that in the Old Testament, when the righteous people died having faith in God, relying on him to save them, that they did not go to hell, but they went to Abraham's bosom. It's Luke 16. You say, well, why that? Why didn't they just go straight to heaven? Because there's only one way to the Father, and the way was still closed. There's only one way to the Father, and it's through the veil, through Jesus Christ. And before Christ died on the cross, they could not enter the presence of God Almighty. In Luke chapter 16, here's the, I'm going to give you the high-level paraphrase. In Luke chapter 16, it's about a man, a beggar named Zechariah. Um, I forgot his name real quick, but it's a rich man and a beggar. What's his name? Zechariah. Well, I forget his name. It's not Zechariah. Lord have mercy on me. But his name starts with a Z. Okay. I got it right in the early service. I forgot now. But listen, it's about a rich man and about a beggar. Lazarus. Thank you. What did I, where was I thinking of Z? I got it right. You can check the 10 o'clock. I got it right. Anyway, Lazarus. So listen to this. Lazarus was the beggar. And every day of his life, he begged the rich man who passed him by for just the crumbs that would fall from his table. And every day the rich man would pass him by, too busy, too concerned with his own life to help this beggar. Scripture tells us in Luke 16 that both died. And when they died, the rich man went to hell, at the core of the earth, and Lazarus, the beggar, went to Abraham's side. This is Luke 16. 
There was a great chasm they could see across, and now their roles had reversed. Now the rich man is begging Lazarus just to dip his finger in the water to quench his suffering. But the chasm was too wide. Now, fast forward to Ephesians 4. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, where was he for three days? Nobody ever asked this question. Where was Jesus for three days? No, he descended to Abraham's bosom, to the, to the purgatory where the righteous dead were kept by faith. And he revealed himself to them as the Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. And my death is now sufficient. My blood has been spilled. Scripture says that he gave gifts unto men and he led captivity captive. And he brought them through the veil into the presence of the most high God, because there is only one way to the Father, and it's through the Son. Today, there is no longer Abraham's bosom. There is no longer purgatory, no longer exists. Why? Now, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord because the veil has been torn and a way has been made. Do you see it now? It's magnificent, and this is the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm gonna close with this point right here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. This is one of the most haunting verses in all of scripture. And I want to address it. I mentioned a few weeks ago, um, another scripture that's in correlation to this one. This is very, very haunting, this verse is. And so I pray that you lean in and that we can get the right understanding. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant, which made us holy as if it were common and unholy, and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. So this is a heavy verse, and I wanna bring it up in, in Hebrews chapter 10 for this reason. Many people read that and they perceive it to say that if you sin again as a Christian, after being saved and water baptized, there's no longer a sacrifice sufficient for you and you're lost. Many people have even turned from the faith and given up their faith altogether over that verse right there. But can I tell you, in order to understand the Bible, you gotta again, remember the context. You gotta remember, who was this book written to? Remember, it's written to a Messianic Jewish descent group of Christians who are wavering and turning back to Judaism. What this scripture is saying is that if you turn back to Judaism and you reject Christ, there is no longer a sacrifice that is sufficient to save you. You are trampling on the grace of God that saves. And if you go, back to, you go back to Judaism and you turn from Christ, who else can
can save you. What other sacrifice would be sufficient? You're gonna go back to the blood of a lamb or a goat? It was just a picture, a foreshadow of the ultimate sacrifice in Christ Jesus. That's what this scripture is teaching. Remember the context. It's talking about don't turn back. Listen, there's a difference between falling as a Christian and falling away to another ideology and abandoning the gospel. It's the difference between falling and falling away. Does that make sense to anybody today? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me say one more thing. Many people today still think that yes, Christ saves me, but now it's up to me to be perfect and holy for the rest of my life. Let me tell you this, you should desire holiness. You should desire to be like God. You should desire to separate from sin, you should. But as long as you're in this flesh, you're gonna be under construction for the rest of your life. And yes, His Holy Spirit is sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus today than we were yesterday, but we will always be up and down, growing as we get closer to Jesus. People say, oh, well, I think you could be sinless. Well, scripture says, if any man says he's without sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. The truth is we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and we need Christ. The whole reason for all of this, the whole tabernacle in it all is to reveal to us how lost and broken we are. People, when they think of the animal sacrifice and that old system, they think it's too bloody, too gory, too violent. I don't want to serve a God like that. Okay, well, hold up. The Old Testament and the Old Covenant and the sacrificials, it's bloody and it's violent, it's gory, you're right. But that's not because of God. That's because of you and I. That shows you how violent, how wicked, how detestable our sin really is. You see, we think sin is no big deal. We know it's wrong. We just don't know how wrong it actually is. But scripture says the wages of sin is death. And there can be no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. It's old, it's bloody, it's gory because that's how broken and how wicked our sin truly is. But there's good news. If you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Lord will save you and wash away your every sin. There's one way to heaven, there's one way to the Father. It's through Jesus Christ alone. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, click that subscribe button, share this podcast on social, or even take a screenshot from your story and tag us. We'd love to hear how the Lord is using this podcast to bless your life. You can send an email to info at visionchurch.com or you can DM us on social with a story of how God is moving in your world. Also, we'd like to thank those who invest in our ministry financially. It's because of your sacrifice that we are able to publish this every week. If you'd like to join in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in the description or visit visionchurch.com and click the Give tab. Thanks again for listening. God bless.